From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Alaska's slogan is the last frontier, and to some people, this means Alaska is the Wild West, a place with less law and order, and some place they can live as they choose. The man who called himself Papa Pilgrim believed moving his family to the wilderness of Alaska offered him the opportunity to do anything he wanted. Papa Pilgrim was the worst kind of hypocrite because he hid his crimes behind his religious zeal. Like a charismatic cult leader, Pilgrim could appear charming and persuasive in public. But there was another side of Papa Pilgrim, and this was the side his family saw all too often. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. This story is not specifically a tale of murder, although I do believe it does involve a murder. I chose this story because it describes the independent streak of many Alaskans and their desire to live without government interference. It also conveys the friendly, open nature of rural Alaskans and their willingness to trust others and go the extra mile to lend a helping hand to strangers. This story also, unfortunately, reveals the nature of those few individuals who moved to Alaska to escape their sins only to repeat them here and become an ugly stain on the fabric of the Alaska landscape. In most wilderness areas in Alaska, you are likely to find a few people who have chosen to live in such a remote area because they want to escape societal norms and public scrutiny. Most of these individuals are good people who simply don't want to be bothered by the government, don't want to be told how to raise their children, or want to be able to follow their own spiritual beliefs. Alaska does have laws, though. Alaska is not the Wild West. Papa Pilgrim probably could have hidden off the grid in the Alaska wilderness and continued his horrible reign over his family had he not taken on the National Park Service and turned a spotlight on himself and his family. My first podcast episode chronicled the Mail Day murders in tiny McCarthy, Alaska, the ghost mining town in the heart of the huge Wrangell St. Elias National Park. Most of this story is also set in McCarthy, and it begins where my last story ended. Chris Richards, one of the survivors of the McCarthy Mail Day Massacre, died when his cabin burned a few days before Christmas in 2001. At almost the same moment when flames leaped from Richards' cabin, the Pilgrim clan marched into McCarthy. Papa Pilgrim, Country Rose, and their 15 children made quite a spectacle in the streets of McCarthy, Alaska. (music) 
The strange story of Papa Pilgrim begins much earlier than his arrival in McCarthy, though. I'll start when he was in high school and went by his legal name, Robert or Bobby Hale. Bobby's father, I.B. Hale, was a college football star who turned down an offer to play for the Washington Redskins and instead joined the FBI. Bobby Hale grew up in an affluent family in Arlington, Texas, where he, his twin brother Billy, and their younger brother Tommy attended Arlington Heights High School. Robert Hale was known for his violent temper and a love for fighting with his fists. He even trained as a boxer as youth. At age 17, Bobby ran off with his 16-year-old high school sweetheart, Kathleen, or KK, Connolly, the daughter of future Texas Governor John Connolly. John Connolly is perhaps best remembered for riding in the car with John F. Kennedy in Dallas on the day Kennedy was assassinated. Bobby and KK eloped and moved to Tallahassee, Florida, where KK soon learned she was pregnant. Bobby and KK had a tumultuous relationship, and on Monday, April 27, 1959, following an explosive argument, KK spent the night with the landlady of their apartment building. The following morning, KK went to the local police station and asked if they could send her back to her parents in Texas. Before the officers had a chance to help her, KK returned to her apartment, where she was found dead a few hours later, the back of her head blown away by a 20-gauge shotgun. According to Bobby, he arrived home and found his wife lying on the sofa with a loaded shotgun, threatening to kill herself. He tried to get her to put down the gun, but when she refused, he lunged for the shotgun and it discharged. KK's death was ruled an accident, despite the absence of KK's prints on the shotgun and the fact that she was shot in the back of the head. After KK died, Bobby returned to Fort Worth, where he received his GED and attended Texas Christian University for a short while. A few months later, Bobby and his twin brother Billy were caught breaking into the Los Angeles apartment of Judith Exner the rumored mistress of JFK and a woman who supposedly also had ties with Sam Giancana, a leading figure in the Chicago Mafia. No explanation ever emerged to suggest why the Hale brothers broke into Exner's apartment. But not long after the break-in, the U.S. government awarded one of the largest military contracts in U.S. history to I.B. Hale's new employer, General Dynamics. Some historians wonder if the brothers were trying to find evidence in Exner's apartment about her affair with Kennedy to blackmail the president into awarding General Dynamics the defense contract. Bobby Hale next wandered from California to Houston and back to California, where he ran with the same crowd as Charles Manson. At age 33, Bobby, who was then going by the name Bob Sunstar, met 16-year-old Curina Rose Bresler near a waterfall in the San Bernardino Mountains. He soon began calling his new girlfriend Country Rose. Hale and Rose found a job caretaking a ranch owned by actor Jack Nicholson in a remote section of northern New Mexico. They stayed on the New Mexico ranch for more than 20 years, raising sheep and goats and growing vegetables. 
Rose gave birth to their first child, Butterfly Sunstar, later renamed Elijah, in 1975. And every other year, Rose bore another child until she and Hale had 15 children. Hale experimented with a variety of religions, but finally settled on his own self-serving form of Christianity. He changed his name to Papa Pilgrim and was not shy about sharing his version of the gospel with anyone who would listen. The Pilgrim children never watched television and had no access to computers. They received no formal education and were naive about the ways of the world. Only Elijah and the oldest boys learned how to read. Hale destroyed all the family books except the Bible and a copy of Pilgrim's Progress and refused to teach the children how to read or even how to perform simple mathematical calculations. He wanted them to know the scripture only through his teaching. He did not want them to read the Bible for themselves and then question his interpretation of it. Hale forced his children to haul his bathwater every night and then allowed them to take baths in his dirty water every three to four days. He bragged that his kids bathed in their undergarments and had never seen a naked body, including their own. Hale demanded total obedience from Rose and his children, and when he determined they had disobeyed him, he unleashed swift, brutal punishment. He whipped them with a leather strap or his belt, and he hit them with his fist. As a trained boxer, he delivered brutal beatings. When Hale and Rose first moved to New Mexico Ranch, they lived miles from their nearest neighbors. But over time, people began moving closer to the strange backwoods couple whose children never seemed to go to school. Hale taught his children it was okay to steal from a neighbor if a neighbor had something they needed. When neighbors started accusing Hale of theft and threatened to write a letter to Jack Nicholson asking him to evict the Hale family from the ranch, Papa Pilgrim decided it was time to take his show on the road and move his clan to Alaska. Once in Alaska, he believed he could live in seclusion with his family, preach his gospel, and act as lord of his kingdom. What Hale did not seem to realize is that conditions can be extreme in Alaska, and you often must depend on others to survive. The Pilgrim family drifted around Alaska for a few years. They lived in Fairbanks and then in Homer for a short time, but neither town offered Papa the seclusion he desired for his family. He knew as soon as he drove into McCarthy in January 2002, this was where he wanted to settle. He did not plan to live in McCarthy itself, but he wanted his home to be near enough to the small town so he could get supplies there on the weekly mail plane. Neil Derish, who was in the process of remodeling the McCarthy Lodge for the summer tourism season, was the first to notice the strange arrival of the Pilgrim family. The temperature hovered at 20 degrees below zero, but most of the Pilgrims huddled together in the open beds of two pickup trucks. When the trucks rolled to a stop in front of the lodge, the kids sprang from the beds and began licking around town excitedly. 
A man with long gray hair, a long beard, a weathered face, and piercing blue eyes climbed from the cab of one of the trucks and introduced himself to Darish as Pilgrim. Darish invited the family into the lodge's dining room. Pilgrim had come to McCarthy with only ten of his kids. Rose stayed back with the younger kids while Papa chucked out McCarthy and scouted available property. Papa liked what he saw in McCarthy, and the Pilgrims charmed the dozen residents who gathered at the lodge to meet them. The Pilgrim kids grabbed fiddles, guitars, and a mandolin from their trucks and put on an impromptu bluegrass concert for the crowd. The children were cute, shy, and very religious. Most of the residents welcomed the Pilgrims, but at least one in the crowd of townspeople saw Papa Pilgrim for the con man he was. Papa Pilgrim soon returned to McCarthy with Country Rose and their 15 children. They bought an abandoned mine 14 miles from McCarthy, up a mountain and accessible only by the nearly impassable McCarthy Green Butte Road. Papa called their new home Hillbilly Heaven. Hillbilly Heaven could be reached by snow machine, horse, and even on foot if you didn't mind hiking for a day. Since it was impossible to drive a truck up the road, though, Pilgrim arranged for supplies to be delivered by bush plane or by horse. The freight costs soon became too expensive, however, and in the fall of 2002, when the family ran short on funds, the Pilgrims began to secretly use a bulldozer to clear the old road to town. Since the road ran through the Wrangell-St. Elias National Park and park regulations prohibited clearing park land or altering the old road in any way, Pilgrim did his best to hide his illicit actions from the Park Service. The following spring, when park rangers discovered what the Pilgrims had done to the road, they began surveying the damage and prepared a lawsuit against Robert Hale, a.k.a. Papa Pilgrim. Pilgrim wasted no time preying on the generosity of other Alaskans and asking for their sympathy and support. He posted letters around McCarthy about the unfairness of the Park Service, denying his simple, God-fearing family access to their home. He invited a television news crew from Anchorage so its viewers could see the family's simple lifestyle, and Papa could talk about how much they needed the old road to haul supplies to their home in Hillbilly Heaven. The charming news piece created support for the Pilgrims and anger against the Park Service. The story about the Pilgrims and their simple, godly lifestyle high above McCarthy in hillbilly heaven spread to national and international news organizations. The Washington Post, The Economist, CNN, and the BBC all did stories on the Pilgrims and their backwood lifestyle. Zealous reporters uncovered the story of Hale's past, but the Pilgrim Patriarch reveled in all the attention and greedily accepted proffered charity. He pushed his charming children in front of the cameras and never missed an opportunity for his family to perform their gospel tunes for the press. Residents of McCarthy, who had at first found the Pilgrims charming and had welcomed them with open arms, soon began to grow tired of the clan. 
At the beginning of the 2004 summer tourist season, Pilgrim dressed some of his younger children in ragged outfits and stationed them by the footbridge into McCarthy, where they sold tickets for a bus ride up to the Kennecott Mine. Other local families already provided a bus service to the mine, and the residents of McCarthy resented the Pilgrims for stealing the business. The Pilgrims also set up a squatter's camp down the street from the McCarthy Lodge, where they stayed when they were in town. Not only did they encroach upon the properties of others, but they brought their livestock into the camp, forcing their neighbors to deal with the smell and excrement from the animals. McCarthy residents repeatedly asked the Pilgrims to move their squatter's camp. But when they refused, Stevens Harper, a park ranger and a neighbor whose driveway had been partially blocked by the Pilgrims' possessions, approached their camp driving a bulldozer. Two dozen McCarthy residents arrived on the scene to support Harper, and Papa Pilgrim finally moved the camp to a parcel of land he'd recently purchased at the end of the McCarthy Road. Papa Pilgrim continued to teach his kids it was okay for them to steal equipment and animals from others, and if the father had a run-in with one of the locals, he often sent Joshua and Jacob, his two oldest sons, to follow or frighten them. When Park Service rangers attempted to climb the road to talk to Pilgrim, some of the oldest kids at first followed the rangers on horseback and then blocked their way when they got closer to Hillbilly Heaven. Papa Pilgrim liked to preach his version of the gospel, and when others disagreed with him, he'd get mad and leave. The people of McCarthy found Papa Pilgrim overbearing and self-righteous, and they were concerned about the welfare of the kids. The older kids often sported large bruises, and people wondered if the bruises had been caused by a rough life outdoors, or was their source more sinister? A few realized most of the kids could not read, and they wondered if the children had ever received formal schooling. Let me pause for a minute to thank the folks at the puzzle game Best Fiends for sponsoring my podcast. I appreciate your support, and I love your game. As I was thinking of what I wanted to say about Best Fiends in this episode, I decided to make a list of my three favorite things about the game. Number one, the game challenges me. It consists of a series of puzzles, and the player must solve each puzzle to move to the next level. Number two, the puzzles are short. It might take a long time to successfully solve a puzzle, but each puzzle lasts only a few minutes. So you can pick up the game, play it for a bit, and put it down again. It is a great way to take a work break or a quick challenge at the end of the evening. Number three, you can play the game offline. This is critical for me because I live remote and we have satellite internet with a stingy data limit. I can play Best Fiends guilt-free without eating up our internet. Best Fiends also has bright, cheerful insect characters that help me solve the puzzles and make me smile. I'm now on level 275 and have discovered rainbow links. Give the game a try and find a fun way to de-stress for a minute. 
Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Although the residents of McCarthy worried about the Pilgrim children, most felt it was not their place to interfere in the lives of this devout Christian family, who seemed well-adjusted and happy. No one could know the horrors Country Rose and her children endured at the hands of Papa Pilgrim. Pilgrim began having sexual relations with his oldest daughter, Elisheba, when she was 18 years old. Ten years later, she, her father, and her mother often shared the same bed. Hale told his daughter that her mother was old and ugly and no longer excited him. He told Elisheba she needed to get him excited so he could plant his seed in her mother. Elisheba hated having sex with Papa. She knew it wasn't right, but when she told her father she thought their relationship was sinful— Papa told her the scripture said it was okay for a father to have intimate relations with his oldest daughter. He also pointed out she was helping her mother have more children. In 2004, the Pilgrims met another devout Christian family who lived in Palmer, Alaska. The Buckinghams had nine children, and the Pilgrim children were thrilled to meet new friends. At first, even Papa Pilgrim liked the Buckinghams. But then Jim Buckingham noticed the many bruises on Elisheba and suspected her father was physically and sexually abusing her. When Buckingham confronted Pilgrim about his suspicions, Pilgrim grew angry and ordered his family to leave the Buckinghams' home. While at the Buckinghams, Elisheba told the Buckingham girls the Bible discouraged marriage. The Buckingham girls, who knew the Bible well, explained to Elisheba she was misquoting the Bible. Elisheba began to wonder if her father had misquoted the Bible on purpose, and she began to question everything Papa had told her. She especially wondered whether the Bible said it was right for a father and daughter to have sexual relations. Papa seemed to be losing control of his temper more often. When Jonathan, the youngest child, cried, Papa would set the baby on his lap and pinch his nose and mouth closed until the baby began to turn blue and pass out. This action not only scared Jonathan, but also terrified Rose and the kids. So Papa began to pinch Jonathan's nose and mouth closed to keep the others in line. In January 2005, Papa took Elisheba and some of the boys with him down the mountain to McCarthy to gather supplies, and they stayed in the shack on the edge of town. That night, Papa argued with the boys over something Jim Buckingham had told them. He sent the boys out to unload the trucks and then lost his temper with Elisheba when she told him he had not been teaching them what the Bible really said. He took off his belt and began whipping Elisheba. When the boys heard her scream, they returned to the shack. Elisheba tried to run out the door, but Papa grabbed her by the hair and dragged her back inside the cabin. He told the boys to leave. So they got on their snow machines and headed up the valley to their home. 
Papa beat Alishaba and raped her repeatedly. He kept her locked in the shack for three days, and when he finally took her home, he made her wear a ski mask so the others could not see her bruises and her badly swollen face. Elishaba's 16-year-old sister, Jerusalem, asked Elishaba to remove her ski mask, and Jerusalem felt sick when she saw Elishaba's face. It was so swollen and bruised, she barely recognized her sister. Elishaba's brothers were shocked and angry when they saw her face and told Papa he was wrong for beating her. Elishaba admitted to her brothers what Papa had been doing to her. She didn't say he had sexually abused her, but she said he had treated her like a wife, only a hundred times worse, and it was as bad as they could imagine. The older boys confronted their father, and Papa hit Joshua with his fist and broke Joshua's nose. The four older boys decided to leave home and told Elishaba she needed to leave too. After they left, Papa declared his sons lost to the devil, and his behavior grew even more erratic as he continued to beat Elishaba and punish the younger kids for small wrongs. Mama told Elishaba to run away from home, but Elishaba was too terrified about what Papa would do to her if he caught her. Finally, one day, when the gasoline supply for the generator ran low, Papa decided to make a quick trip to McCarthy to get gas, and Elishaba knew this was her chance to make a break for it. She announced to the others that she was leaving, and Jerusalem said she would go with her. Jerusalem worried Elishaba did not have the will to keep herself alive, so she wanted to accompany and take care of her sister. Mama called Joseph in Glen Allen, and he said he and the other boys would meet Elishaba and Jerusalem when they arrived in McCarthy and would keep them safe from Papa. Elishaba and Jerusalem knew they did not have long before Papa returned. He planned to hurry to McCarthy, grab the gas, and rush back up the hill because he was afraid Elishaba would escape if he left her alone too long. The young women attempted to start one of the snow machines, but it would not fire. When they looked at the engine, they realized the spark plug had been removed. They replaced the spark plug, told their family goodbye, drove a short distance over the snow, and the fan belt broke. Jerusalem struggled through the deep snow, back to the cabin, and started a second machine. They only went a short distance on this snow machine, though, before it ran out of gas, and they saw it had a fuel line leak. They were running out of time before Papa returned, and in desperation, they transferred to a third snow machine. They traveled a short distance and then pulled off the main trail and hid in the trees. Jerusalem had brought white sheets with them, so they covered themselves and the snow machine with the sheets and remained motionless in the snow. Elishaba could not even imagine the magnitude of Papa's rage if he found them. And once he got near the cabin, he would see the stalled snow machines and know something was wrong. As they heard Papa's snow machine coming up the trail, Elishaba prayed and tried to remain calm. When he drove past them, Elishaba told her sister they had to hurry. They had one half hour at best before Papa would be on their trail. When they arrived in McCarthy, their brothers were not at the meeting place. 
Elisha pulled the snow machine into thick brush, and she and Jerusalem crawled under the boughs of a spruce tree, hiding from their father and waiting for their brothers. They heard Papa's snow machine searching the streets of the town, circling and waiting for any sign of his missing daughters. Elisheba and Jerusalem stayed under the spruce tree for five days, eating cold cheese and raisins while the temperature dropped to 20 degrees below zero at night. They didn't dare build a fire, and they had no sleeping bags, so they huddled and waited. They finally decided to sneak down to their town shack and use the phone. They knew they had to be careful, though, because their father could be staying at the cabin. When they arrived at the shack, they quietly searched the surrounding woods, and indeed, Papa had hidden his snow machine in the thick brush. The girls hurried back to their hiding place, and the next day they entered another cabin and used the phone there to call their brothers. The brothers had misunderstood the original rendezvous spot and had been anxiously waiting to hear from their sisters. The brothers rescued Elisheba in Jerusalem, and the girls eventually went to live with the Buckinghams in Palmer. A few months later, when Elisheba heard Papa had nearly beaten two-year-old Joseph to death, she knew it was time to report Papa's many sins to the authorities. Robert Hale heard the troopers were after him, and he managed to hide from them for 12 days, but was eventually found and arrested. He stood quietly while the troopers placed the handcuffs on him. Hale continued to deny the claims made by his wife and children, even after a Palmer grand jury charged him in September 2005 with 30 felony accounts of rape, assault, and incest. He pleaded not guilty to the charges, but a year later he changed his plea to no contest in exchange for a 14-year prison sentence. At Hale's sentencing hearing in September 2007, his wife and all his children, except the youngest one, addressed the court and their father, berating him and asking him why he had done such terrible things to them. They told the judge they loved their father and were trying not to hold any bitterness against him, but they begged the judge not to let him out of prison. As 14 of his 15 children spoke at the sentencing hearing, the spectators cringed while they heard for the first time the horrors the Hale family had endured at the hands of their father. Elisheba's statement, when she detailed some of her father's most appalling acts toward her, sickened the crowd. The children confessed they thought their world was normal until they met the Buckinghams and realized there was another way to live. Robert Hale died in a prison hospital on March 26, 2008, only eight months into his 14-year sentence. He was 67 years old and had been in poor health for many years with advanced cirrhosis, diabetes, and blood clots. He never apologized to his family nor repented for his evil deeds. In the end, he refused to talk to his family. Most of the Hale children moved in with the Buckinghams where they were taught to read and write. Joseph and Joshua married the two oldest Buckingham daughters, and Elisheba is also now married. 
How do you erase a lifetime of abuse and a childhood where you were taught how to survive on your own in the wilderness, but were taught nothing about how to belong to society and treat others? Hopefully, with much support, the Hale children will find their way. The residents of McCarthy, who had originally found the Hale children sweet and the family charming, were horrified when they learned of the nightmare Papa Pilgrim created for his family in the cabin on the mountain. In addition to the 15 children born to Robert and Rose Hale, Hale fathered three children from previous marriages. Country Rose was Hale's fourth wife, and probably not his first abuse victim. K.K. Connolly was 16 years old when she married Robert Hale, and she died 44 days later from a shotgun blast to the back of her head. K.K. was certainly one of Hale's earliest victims. If you would like to listen to extra episodes of Murder and Mystery in The Last Frontier, I invite you to join The Last Frontier Club. I am celebrating the grand opening of The Last Frontier Club until the end of June. The names of everyone who joins before then will be placed in a drawing to win Last Frontier Club merchandise, autographed copies of my books, handmade glass jewelry, and more. I will, of course, include the names of those of you who have already joined the club in my drawing. You can find the link to the club in the show notes, or you can simply go to patreon.com. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. And I'll be back soon with the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.